Welcome to Tech Matters, sharing our vast business and development experience with developers like you. Here are your hosts, Stephen Feather and Patrick Shetta. If you value the intellectual property of your organization, you will be using some form of source control within your organization. <laughs> You don't really get the option to simply trust that your information is inherently safe. With the modern reality that teams can be very small, the intellectual property doesn't live in a whole lot of places. So, what is source control? Source control is a repository of your stuff, which, if I can get a little more detailed, is... <laughs> your code, your documentation, anything relating to the existence of your project. All right. Um, and, and we'll walk through some of those. Uh, we're talking source code. So if you're in Java, you're looking at Java files, probably not necessarily storing binaries, but could be. Um, if you're using some of the current available free services online or you're hosting somewhere, they allow you to put some binaries online separate as releases. But most of the time we're talking pure source. Yes. We're talking images, assets. What else are we talking about? Business documents. Okay. Uh, things that are the result of the process of creating the ideas. All right. So with that, the next question is, who should be using this? I think, um, to put it bluntly, everybody. <laughs> Everybody's a good way to put it. Okay. Everybody uh, on the team. Well, every organization, so go a little broader, every organization should be concerned about their intellectual property and the persistence of the things that create the project. Good. And, and then within the teams, um, everybody who is contributing anything to the teams. So like you said, maybe binaries could come into question, but anything that could be produced by developers, which is always first on the list of what comes to, people, comes to people's minds, but designers, uh, business analysts, product owners, things like that. We'll come back to designers in a little bit because the first thing they think is, well, I'm just going to send you a file. I'm going to email that to you, or I'm going to put that on a shared drive somewhere. And we'll talk in a little bit about why we wouldn't want to necessarily allow that to happen. Um, you give external clients access so that you have control and history over their deliverables. That's a, that's a big one for us. Um, yeah. And so, hold them to good. hold them to the standards that you're using too. So absolutely that uh, th there's, there's tracing of things and there's no sneaking in and, and everything is controlled. Um, and, and why do we do this? We do this to protect assets. Um, we talk from in our organization, I, I like to refer to it, and, and this is sounds bad, but we refer to it as the hit by the bus principle. What happens if I was hit by the bus today? Where does that leave our clients? Where does that leave our organization? Or where does that leave as we dive in? Where does that leave an individual product or project? Right. And, and as the teams, like I said, the, the opening as teams are, are these days very small, your bus count is small. Yes. <laughs> yes. You could have one person leave an organization, one person um, be eliminated from an organization. And, and that's a harsh thing to say. But in reality, 
somebody's job in an organization is to protect the assets. Um, if you're an officer in a company, you have a legal obligation to protect the assets and the values and the intellectual property of an organization. Um, preserving history. That's a big one. Very much so. Um, as uh, if you're speaking um, specifically about development, um, what do people do? Uh, comment sections out. So you come to some code that you're working on and you see this huge commented out section. Is that something that started development and hasn't been put in yet? Or is that really old and it's not needed anymore? Um, you can eliminate messes like that just by maintaining history. I see a section of code and I go, why did the developer write it this way? And with history, I can roll back through often and say, okay, at this point in time, this occurred and I can make some assumptions. Ah, oh, we made a change in the way we handled this API call because we also see over here that we changed something in our API server. Or if we're doing mobile, we sit and we say, ah, the reason we make this call a little differently here is because Apple made a change in the SDK. We can follow back through that line of thinking. And that's just looking at the code and looking at timestamps. If your developer is really good, he's putting in commit messages for each of the things that he's adding that explain what he's done, why he's done it, the reason he's done it, the weather at the time that he did it. I mean, I think we we, we kind of chuckle about that, but long commit messages are rare. And we'll talk about that when we get to some other stuff. Um, protecting scope. We don't normally think about source control as a way to protect scope. Have you ever run into an incident where you needed to do that? Um, I think probably, um, scope creep, um, is a very real situation. And, and I think that if you, like I said, if you have a, a first thing that comes to mind is external clients who are not on your same uh, methodology, you get some things snuck in. And if you're not real aware of what's going on, then someone, they can point and say, well, it's in the document. Go look at it. It's in there. And then you can say, but it didn't used to be. Now you have, you know, some traceability of that scope. Sure. And, and with that comes accountability and responsibility. And if you're unable to track a metric, and we've talked about analytics before too, this is another one of those trackable moments. And I like the way you worded that. Um, I like this one, and most devs don't. Uh, helps enforce style consistency. Do uh, you want to share sure. that? Yeah, sure. Um, you can keep committed um, things like your editor config files, um, rules for uh, code linting, code formatting, um, those type of things. So instead of trying to uh, make everyone confirm, conform to some guidelines that maybe are a little overwhelming, you can drop in some, you know, config files that will uh, do that stuff for you and they don't have to think about it. And every time uh, maybe you save a file or pre-commit or somewhere along the line, it can just do that for you. And, and if you have a team-wide change of some type of format or, or something, then you just drop it in there, everybody gets it and everybody is automatically doing the right thing. 
when you're working with multiple clients and maybe you're, you're the outsourced person, if that's in the repo, one client may be using spaces and another client likes tabs. And so it's the client who has set the code style and your editor will conform to what they want. And that way it's not you kind of pushing it back. Uh, it, it's also easier when it comes to, we're going to talk about code review in a little bit, but when it comes to that, it makes that code reviewer's life a lot easier. Yes. Um, I'll take the next one, um, assigning blame. Quite often, if there is a discussion about why something doesn't work, it's nice to go back line by line and say, who is responsible for this piece of code? And by blame, we're not necessarily putting a qualitative value on that. We're simply making a quantitative or saying, this is the person that touched it, uh, right or wrong. And we can walk back to that person, go across the office, call them up, chat them, slack them and say, okay, what does this commit do? Why did you do it this way? Yeah. Very useful. Uh, blame, um, blame tracing, I guess. Um, and, and rarely do I see it in, in the negative sense of the word, like, ha we're, we're on this witch hunt. It's more, I don't understand this. Oh, I see that this guy did it. I can go discuss it with him. Sure. Sure. I'm always on the witch hunt. Um, uh, developer monitoring. Uh, we had talked about this a little bit. One of the nice things is that if you're using a uh, source control that allows branching, while somebody's working on a particularly small section, you can see the micro commits as they're going through their branch and follow, kind of follow along in real time of what they're working on, what they're thinking. And you can, before it even gets to review, sometimes ward off some problems or something that that developer may not have thought about as a lead or a senior. Exactly. Yeah. I think that comes um, very important as a, a senior person, maybe monitoring, uh, maybe from a managerial type of role, what someone is doing, or even from an architectural role, uh, maybe someone has a particular task that's going to affect the design, a small section of the design. And if maybe you're not sure they understand it, you can kind of watch and see as they progress and before they progress too far, are they moving in the right direction? Time management, I can see you've been assigned something and you're working towards that. And while I'm not looking over your shoulder physically, I can kind of look over your shoulder and see if you're on track to get to that point. That's important if we've got a merging of multiple issues and we're knowing this one relies on that one. Where are we at? Should I assign something else? Um, child issues, those kind of things. Um, so how do we do, how do we use the tools? Um, what's that process look like? Now, in our shop, we're very big on process. Process drives everything. We believe that the processes we have in place solve time, money issues down the line and protect both our interests and our clients' interests. When do I start? You start early on. And and both of us have the same mentality of, of tight iterations and getting the core stuff in place early on that's going to save you headaches later. And I know we had mentioned uh, previously uh, analytics, which is very important for the things that it does, but Source control, if you have anything that's been created and you don't have your source control set up yet, you're doing it wrong. I believe that's true. From before you hit the ideation phase, those documents need to be sitting somewhere where everybody has access to it. You can come back and reference 
the changes that took place as you went through the process. And that really does save time later on because you don't you don't always have to go hunt somebody down. Sometimes you can read a commit message. You can go back and look at a previous version of a document and say, okay, I understand that between February and March, these thoughts changed and this is where we're headed. And that gives ownership to all the folks on your team if you give them access to that. And, and, and as appropriate per, per your organization. Um, flow, how does that, what does that look like? Right, so... I've been uh, having a technique or a process that I use for for a long time for for branching that um, conveniently has, is the same concept as like Git uses this concept called flow, where uh, your your main branch is perhaps production, and anything that's not production that's being in development <clears throat> will be in in different branches and they're they're named in a smart way so like QA maybe a pre-production development feature maybe every developer has their own named branch and just the the process for getting to small changes and and getting that to be promoted up through and end up in the production branch uh is basically uh, what they what they call flow. Sure, sure. And and branching allows me to work on a certain part of a project over here without affecting the whole. And you can work on your piece of the action over there. And eventually, we bring those together and kind of merge them. Um, but it also means that if I want you to look at something that I'm working on, you can grab my branch, pull it over there, look at it in what we would say is a clean environment, like it's like you're sitting at my desk. And you can run it, and you can look at it, you can evaluate it, and say, yep, that's fine. And then if you don't like it or you want to keep it, you can move that into what you want, you can get rid of it, and it puts all the code back to where you were before you started. And there's a huge advantage in that, particularly when you want to test stuff, which we talked about proof of concepts earlier on. One of the big things is sometimes when you're writing code, you sit and something was missed that should have been proof of concept early, and you want to do it now. So you can proof a concept it off in this clean environment over here. If it works, fine, pull it in. If it doesn't, kick it out the door. I think another advantage of your example of being able to grab each other's code and and the assumption that you didn't say was that you stash what you're working sure. on aside is mentally, if you're working on something very difficult or complex and you're really committed to it and you're really focused but for some reason you have to jump over and help someone else. Um, you don't have to do any mental gymnastics to, to try to see your new stuff and see their new stuff at the same time. You can literally just shift your point of view over to theirs and then come back to yours. And although it, w it would still be considered a distraction, it's less of a distraction than if you just sent me a file and said, take a look at this, and maybe I'm visually comparing it to my file, which is totally different now because I've been working in it as well. Absolutely. So that's, that's a nice feature. What have I done today? When was the last time I saved this file? What was the biggest change I did in the last 24 hours or even in the last 30 minutes? Absolutely. Um, so when we're looking at those tools, um, a couple different types of tools. The uh, first thing you have is the, the repository model. Uh, that's a big word to mean. What's the relationship between your batch of code and your, I, I guess, your working copy of code and the repository 
and my working copy of code and the repository. And there's roughly two times. Right. So I think very popular these days is the distributed model. And and you see that in uh, some of the more popular products, but there's also the, the legacy for lack of better terms, but it's just a client server model. And that was, that was, um, you know, extremely popular up to a few years ago and, but it still exists in, uh, and still being used by some pretty good sized enterprises. Very much so. Um, so I, I see, uh, kind of as an aside, I see some conflicts, mental conflicts with some younger junior developers who only know, these distributed models, but have to work for reasons of the client in these client server models. And they go, I have no idea how this works or why can I not do that? Which brings us to the concurrency model. And and so you've got two things. First, you have how do we move stuff around, which is the repository model and where is it stored? And then we have the concurrency model, which is basically how does your code relate to my code? And if we're looking at the distributed model, the majority of those are based on a merge. You write some code into the same file that I want to write code in, and the system kind of tries to merge them together if it can. If there's a conflict, then the the poor sucker who touched it last gets stuck with the responsibility of kind of managing uh, those conflicts. And then the old school way of doing it was everything sat in a repository, And if I wanted to work on file A, I checked out file A, and nobody else could touch it until I had checked it back in. And and that is a completely different mindset. And as you say, the new junior devs, and they've never had to deal with some of this. And so the concept of not being allowed to touch something in a repo is foreign to them. And interestingly, I can remember before the lock stuff was even in place, where you could check out a file... And it was more for the the tracing of the history. Uh, the locking wasn't in place, so I could check out a file, and you could check it out. And whoever saved it last won. <laughs> I absolutely experienced that. Which is pretty much group. just, let's put it in a common file folder. Yeah. yeah. Which is the way some of Microsoft's distributed or uh, cl- uh, source control stuff actually worked, was a shared folder somewhere. And, uh, and luckily, I, we don't see that too much. I'm glad. Uh, there are advantages to the, the newer repository models. Um, so w- when do we put our code into the repository? When do we make those what we were, we've referred to as commits? Uh, when does, what's the best practice for that? I think mm, the best, best practice is a little hard to pin down because it depends de- on the organization, depends on the organization yeah. and, and your procedures. Um, I think that there's there's different ways to look at it. So there's time-based. So you can look at time-based as time intervals. So we do them at certain uh, time intervals. Uh, feature-based or or maybe ad hoc chunk-based. So maybe if we talk about time-based, you could, you know, have, have your uh, procedure to be maybe do it at the end of every day before you leave or the end of every week or something like that. Definitely before you go on vacation. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Has anybody seen Bob or his code? No, nope, haven't seen Bob or his code for a fortnight. Uh, for those in the U.S., fortnight is two weeks. For you, those in the U.K., you really just need to say two weeks. Uh, feature-based. Uh, if you're using something like Jira, or you could attach it to a, a ticket. And so when you make a commit, you're saying, I have completed everything in this ticket. And 
that gives you a, a mental chunk, so to speak. And you used the word chunk earlier. That's why I used it. Um, if you're in agile, you could have a story associated with it and mentally say, we've completed this story. And that's when I put that code in. And it would be common then as they well. They may be the same, but not everybody uses Jira yeah. it, for Agile. And I was going to say, it's, it'd be common that if you do it that technique, um, that you would actually put that in a commit message, fixed bug, whatever, or finished feature, whatever, user story, so that you can trace it. Uh, you know, this is a, a feature-based commit, and I'm telling you what that feature is, rather than I'm just trusting that it is some feature. One of the nice things that we have here is because we do, and this is not a sales thing at all, but we do use Jira and we do Bitbucket and it works with GitHub too, I think. But when we have an item, uh, an issue in Jira and we assign, we have that tag listed in the commit, there's a relationship of links back and forth. So we can go and look at the repo and say, hey, this was... um, action 245 for whatever the project is. And you can click on that and you can go back to the ticket and you can see the comments that go with it. And the reverse of that is that if you're looking at the tickets, you can go back and find all of the various commits that are assigned to it and sometimes even a branch at that point. And so there's this whole interconnected, I'm tracking information. And you and I are very big on what are we tracking? We're tracking data, we're going through iterations, we're, we're tracking analytics, just all of that kind of stuff. And I think this helps when it comes down to the code as well. Absolutely. <laughs> it's hard to complete with that. Um, we talked a little bit about um, what gets stored, and we mentioned that everything gets stored. We, we talked about code, business docs, those kind of things. Um, assets from designers, uh, raw assets. Very often, your UI or UX folks will send you over a sketch file or a PSD. And it is very nice to have those kind of things listed so that a dev can go back and look at them, look at the changes between two files, see what was modified, make sure they have the latest working copy. And basically what you're saying is source control is the law. This is where everything is. So this is the latest of everything. Yes. And and I personally don't want to have to, for uh, under the the situation where I do need to look at a Photoshop file, I don't want to have to go to a shared drive and grab it. And I don't want them sending it to me. I want to be able to go to the repository and grab it myself and have that confidence that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be getting rather than maybe it's the right one that came across in the email. You mentioned earlier having the, the mindset of having somebody send you a file and then switching gears. The same thing applies when they send email. Where are your assets listed? And if they're sending it to email, that means that you've got project assets sitting in a mail server, which is not a file server, sitting in a mail server. And the person they sent it to may leave the company. And now that file is stuck in their mail account. So somebody says, hey, have you seen the assets for this? Well, I think they were sent to Bob. Now, granted, I just mentioned Bob was on vacation, but he came back. Or maybe he still is out, and nobody has Bob's password to get that out of there. But if it's going into the repo, then every dev who should have access has access to those assets and could pull it up at any time. Otherwise, you're stuck and constrained by who has what information. Exactly. That's a control issue. That's a flaw in your flow. That is um, a liability to your company. Um, the other big thing is... As we're moving stuff in and out of source control, uh, it is possible that bad code can come through 
or bad assets can come through and make it through to production. There is a concept called code review, and I while we're not going to delve too deeply into it, now's the time to bring it up. And the reason we're going to bring it up now is that when you initiate a policy that says we're using source control, now is the time that you set up the flow and the policies regarding how you accept code that's going to push to production. Um, so what do we mean by a code review? I think it's kind of self-explanatory in that... But we're going to talk about it in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let me dive deeper. Uh, that... It, it is code that someone has committed, but you do need to have the, the checks and balances in place from other team members, um, uh, senior team members, to review it, to make sure that, th- that what is being done is quality. And we can even go a, a little more deeper into that, but um, the the commits can't just be Everybody's committing, and I've been on projects like this, and one fairly recently, where code reviews were not done early on in the project, and people were changing things. People were uh, changing formats of files, the tabs versus spaces, um, messing with designs, not understanding early architecture and changing things as they saw fit. And the other people who kind of assumed that things were going as, you know, previously done got a big surprise i can i can understand that so to me that's in general that's a huge benefit and and we mentioned style and and when we talk about style it's more than and we'll pick on javascript a little bit it's more than whether your editor uses spaces or tabs which is a war in itself um spaces and whether or not in javascript you put semicolons at the end of a line or not you better have semicolons. Um, it, it is about how do you write your for loops? How do you write your ifs? And do you write them consistently across the organization? And we'll talk, we'll go into depths in a different episode on style guides. Um, but those are the kind of things you're looking at in a review. Uh, some of that can be automated with a lint, but some of that requires the eye of a dev who remembers that all of our if statements are done this way and all of our for loops are done this way or maybe your organization doesn't do for loops anymore and they're all doing each and you got to be you need to be consistent across your organization so it's not just about your skill it's about whether or not you're able to remember all of the guidelines for the code to be consistent right and and maybe i need to back up a little bit about um some of some of the non-style things that need to go in it. So the functionality, you know, does this do what it's supposed to do? <laughs> I've got like, code. What's it do? We don't know. Uh, is it, does it break something else? And, and oh, as, your, big as your projects get bigger and people start working in maybe overlapping in uh, silos of code that they don't, you know, air quotes, own, but sure. you have to overlap with other people and maybe not, quite understand some some things and you it's very very realistic that going to break some things that you don't understand the law of unintended consequences yes so you you have to ask that question you know does it do what it's supposed to is it breaking anything um you know does it look pretty that's a good good one is it readable yeah Um, readable maintainable from a from a readability point of view but functionality there's huge amounts of 
things that go with functionality and not just, you know, did they implement this feature? Yes. Or any side effects. And how often have we seen somebody say, well, I've solved this problem and I did these other three things. Uh, does this commit only do what it's supposed to do? And, and, and in an agile environment, you're only looking at the one thing because you want your code to be as tight as it possibly can be. So your commit should be as tight as they possibly can be. You're not going to say, I implemented Touch ID. Oh, and by the way, I've created a new splash screen and I've done all these other things in the app. Well, those are separate issues and they shouldn't be combined. I should be able to check the one thing. Yeah, and especially if uh, the feature, like the big one you said, Touch ID is critical and it has to be in you know by the end of the week, but you have all these other things coupled with the commit and maybe one of those things doesn't work right. And then you have to start cherry picking things out sure. and, and getting back to where you just should have been in the first place. And discussions get heated and everybody's upset because you're under deadlines. Uh, <laughs> def- definitely understand that. Um, this is also a teaching moment in code review. Um, I think we both look at it from that point of view. This isn't about my saying, I've caught a bug in your code. And we've said that a couple of times. And, and the reason that comes up a lot in different areas, whether we're talking about QA or code review or any of those things, there does seem to be a very antagonistic environment in development that I'm not sure why it's there or how it continues to persist. For our part, um, we try very hard not to have that. The idea is to mentor as a senior dev who's doing code review. I, I love that opportunity, and I like to use it um, as as the one doing the review. I love to say, um, here's something that you could, you know, like you said, maybe this is not ideal for a for loop. Think of it the each loop or, or something like that um, with just a little experience that you can uh, expose them to. And, and maybe it, it's not a hard, you must do this, but here's something to think about. Um, and I like to be in the position where if I do a commit and it's a large commit, I like it when someone makes comments in there. I don't think I follow this, what you did. Um, just thinking off the top of my head, could this possibly break that? I want people to review my code like that. And I definitely don't get the the hostility and the defensiveness when someone does that to me. Uh, I, I embrace it. And it may be that we've been down the road a little farther than some other folks. Um, I'm the head of our firm, and I require code reviews of my code. And so when we're talking code review, it doesn't always have to be by a senior dev. I want somebody else to look over my work. Because none of us are perfect, and we all, at one point or the other, as rare as it possibly can be, make mistakes. And even if you're a 99% person and you only make 1%, it could be that 1% that totally breaks a project. And it's great to have somebody else come alongside and go, hey, I know you're the boss, but you screwed that up. Uh And, And there's a majority to being very experienced and and accepting that more junior people can, you know, try to shoot you down. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think from the mentoring side, if a junior dev is looking at a senior's work, they're going to be exposed and learn to read quality code. Um, If you want to be a great author, you read great books. If you want to be a great artist, you look at great paintings. And I think the same thing applies to code. Now, I'm not bragging and saying I got great code, but I think when you're 
when you're a junior dev, how do you learn? You look at other people who write great code. Um, one of the downsides, and I'll get on a little pedestal here, one of the problems with so much source code available on the internet right now is that there is so much bad code out there. And there is a lot of exposure to really bad ideas. Um, and code review allows you to take some stuff. Have, it's an opportunity for a discussion. Somebody said, hey, I think I saw a way to do that. They send that through, but your experience can say, that's not how you should do that. You've got bad information. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting down off the pedestal. Um, along with that come the skills. You got to make sure that your team understands how to fully utilize the tool that you choose. As well as the consequences. Absolutely. If you're using Git and somebody rebases and they have no idea what they're doing, you're taking the next six months off <laughs> yeah. uh, from any productive work and you're just trying to save the world. Uh, unless you have somebody who knows how to reverse the rebase and those are usually <laughs> your senior folks. Right. And, and I see, um, uh, speaking of Git, uh, projects I've been on, most people don't use command line Git. They'll use some type of tool on top of it, like Tower or something. And it sure helps to understand the com command line roots of the tool to understand what the tool is doing. The, I'm sorry, the, the higher UI-based tool, uh, rather, you know, because it's very easy to um, just push a couple buttons and my code got committed, so I'm great. But but you need to know, do you have the setting on for, you know, automatic rebases or whatever options might be? You really need to understand what's going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would advise if you're a junior dev and somebody in your firm says, hey, I really want you to take this class on Git or something. And I'm not going to be the guy that teaches that. There are much better guys than I who know Git much better than I do. So I'm not going to do that. If somebody says, I think you should do this, and you get in there and you go, oh, this is just, I'm on the CLI all the time in a terminal, there's a reason. Because behind the scenes, it's a CLI tool. Um, you really need to take the time and figure out how your tool works so that you can be more efficient too. Um, one of the other advantages when you're using source control is that every time there's a commit made, a lot of these source controls uh, platforms have little hooks building mm -hmm. that allow you to fire off events, either messages off to Slack to say, Hey, Bob's back from vacation and he's committed something. Finally, Bob's back. I know Bob doesn't do anything, but, um, so there's those kind of things. Um, and if we're talking about an agile environment where we want to quickly run automated tests and that kind of stuff, we can use that to run off to Jenkins and very useful, very useful. Um, so that's another advantage to, in your automated sequence. Um, we've talked a little bit about some tools. We've mentioned Git and some others. Um, we're not advocating one over the other. I know that we prefer to use Git in our shop, and that seems to be the norm. Uh, it's free. You can host Git yourself. You can throw it on Bitbucket. You can throw it on GitHub, depending on how much you're moving, private, public repos. There might be a cost involved in that. Um, Subversion is another big one you're going to run into. Um, subversion, I, I've never been a real big fan and it, it's probably because it's a client server versus distributed and it's a newer compared to some of the other ones. Um, Mercurial is another one that you're going to see and you're going to be able to host those on GitHub as well. Um, not even going to mention CVS. Um, 
if you're coming from enterprise, you may have seen something from Borland. You're just going to see stuff from Microsoft. I know I saw you, your little eyebrows move. Yeah, those are some old school ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go ahead in the show notes. I'll post. Uh, there's a real nice Wikipedia audit article that goes through and shows the differences between them. And we would be here for another 45 minutes just arguing points and that kind of stuff. So pretty much if you're going to work with us, you're going to use Git. Uh, I think you're probably in the same place. I am. Yeah. I used uh, Mercurial for a while and, and, and liked it but I think I like Git better personally. Yeah, and I, and I think if you've used Mercurial, you're going to move into Git just fine and back and forth. If, you've, if you're using SVN or something, um, Git's going to feel uncomfortable. And a lot of SVN folks find, or Git folks find SVN uncomfortable and vice versa. And, and pretty much because that's the different repo model. Yes. Um, so it depends on where you started. Uh, on that note, I think we'll finish off. I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes uh, for Git Flow as well, which I think if you're going to use Git, it's a very good way to get started in your organization. Uh, we appreciate your time. We want to thank you for being with us. If you would, please visit iTunes and give us a rating. Uh, give us a little star there. And on that note, thank you. Thanks for joining.